Today we're continuing our series on the book of Acts, or the book of Acts of the Apostles. And the name of this particular talk is Acts. Who's in? Continuing from last week's excellent introduction to the book of Acts by Omer Akhtar, we look at the narrative continuing from the book of Luke. Jesus laid the groundwork for living out the good news. And now, what will his disciples do? And how will they fare? Omer brought out four themes. Salvation is spiritual, physical, and social. It brings about wholeness with God, wholeness with nature, and wholeness with one's community. Point two, the church, capital C, big C, the whole church, encompassing every single one one of the followers of Jesus across the world. The church is led by the Spirit, and it's the good news in action. Point three, the church is Jesus on earth in the sense that it is expanding the church beyond geographical, socioeconomic, and cultural limits to include so many. And fourth, at the same time, while the church is doing all this, the church is very much a work in progress. And one of the issues that the church has struggled with is inclusion. Who is in and who is out? Let's look at our first source, Israel. Throughout the history of God and Israel, we find that there is a running principle regarding those outside of Israel. They, too, will share in the blessings of Israel, beginning with Abraham and God's promise to him that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations, we see singular episodes where non-Israelites or Gentiles are blessed by their interaction with Israel, including the father-in-law of Moses, Jethro, Rahab of Jericho, Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings, Naaman the Syrian, and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. All of these individuals were blessed through their interactions with Israel. Some were even adopted or integrated into the tribes of Israel. And God built protections around these individuals, these sojourners. He built these protections into the Torah. For example, we have three listed here. The first patch is is basically a general statute. Sojourners are protected from oppression. The second passage is the application of a social justice principle. Sojourners should not go hungry. Therefore, do not harvest all of your field. Leave corners for the sojourners to come and the poor to come to harvest for themselves so that they will not go hungry. The third is a criminal statute. When it comes to physical assault, the native Israelites shall have no special privileges over the sojourner. They are equal under law. And it gets even more progressive from that. The first passage up here applies to God's rest for everyone. Not just the native Israelite, but even the sojourner is given the blessing of Sabbath to rest from work on the seventh day. The second listed permits the sojourner to make offerings and sacrifices to God, just as the native Israelite can. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout the generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you, and for the stranger who sojourns with you. They are worshipers, just like everyone else, and so they can bring their offerings to the temple, just like the Israelites can. However, this is integration, not inclusion. Full inclusion of whole people groups into the nation of Israel was banned in the writings of Moses, and for a very good reason. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, 
then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But that, thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram, their asherah poles, and burn their carved images with fire. This was no idle warning. And at the time, at this time in their development, the people needed this level of exclusion. In the history of Israel, we see many times how their interactions with these different cultures lead the nation away from God, ultimately resulting in Israel becoming conquered and the people being taken into exile. By the time of Jesus, many of Israel did return to the Promised Land to reform as a community under the control of other empires. But they had learned a very painful lesson. These people groups around you are real threats to leading you away from God. So it makes complete and total sense that holding the Torah, including this prescription against interacting with other people groups, would be heavy on the mind of the Jewish people. But over the centuries, the people of Israel learned from the failures of the past. They became more resilient, more able to hold on to their faith and trust in God at difficult times, and capable of more interactions with other people groups without forgetting God. In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3 and 4, Paul wrote that the law, including this one against inclusion, served as a guardian, a teacher, a pedagogue, to a young people easily swayed by others until they are ready. Parents, raise your hands. Do you have any parents out there? Okay, so you won't, you'll understand this completely. You know how your children, you know, you know how you have to keep your children away from bad influences, uh, inappropriate TV programs or movies, online videos, or those other kids who are just a little too, let's say, smart for their age? That's what this law was designed to do. Until Israel was ready to live in a world filled with bad influences, God placed protections like this law upon them until they had grown in their relationship with God and they were ready to face these influences without succumbing to them. But was Israel ready? In one sense, we see that the coming of Jesus of Nazareth was an inquiry on their readiness, a test of sorts. Jesus preached the good news that opened the door of God's kingdom to publicans and sinners, and he received a lot of flack for that. But what about the inclusion of these external people groups, these Gentiles, as part of God's kingdom? Luke 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And they began to say to him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said, is this not Joseph's son? 
Here's Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, back in his hometown of Nazareth, standing in his hometown synagogue, reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and implying that finally, after centuries of hoping and waiting, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they loved it. And him. They ate it up. They agreed with every hopeful word he gets. He spoke. Jesus, the local boy, the kid from down the street, had them in the palm of his hand with these words. And then he said this. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the prophet, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What the heck just happened? He had them in the palm of his hand and they were marveling at his gracious words and now they're trying to kill him? All he did was cite two stories from scriptures. What did he do to set them off? Jesus cited two stories where the Israelites suffered from famine and leprosy. But God chose to feed a Gentile woman and to heal a Gentile man. You see, it wasn't that Jesus was proclaiming the good news to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, and to the oppressed. That's not what made the people of Nazareth angry. It was the idea that the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed would also include outsiders. This fear of inclusion and of the consequences that once came with it were so strong among the people that they were ready to kill one of their own. And Jesus' followers, Jews themselves, were not immune to this. In the very first chapter of Acts, which Omer talked about last week, 40 days after his resurrection, the risen Jesus ascends to the heavens, leaving his disciples behind but promising them that a helper is on the way to empower them and to, to continue his work, the work of expanding the kingdom and reaching out to people in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, basically everywhere. This is inclusion of a massive scope, but one that Jesus' followers were not certain of given their people's history. And yes, they had seen Jesus rise from the dead, and he had promised their, their power, but a little over a month ago, they had seen that same Jesus arrested and executed for breaking societal boundaries. That's kind of hard to get over. They had to be a little bit scared of drawing too much attention, lest they follow him to the cross. So they wanted to be conservative about their next moves and to be more protective and exclusionary. As an example of this, about 10 days later, the group of disciples numbering 120 people, including Jesus' mothers and brother, decides to select a replacement for Judas Iscariot as one of Jesus' 12 primary disciples. You see, after Judas had betrayed Jesus to the Romans and the religious leaders, he had killed himself. 
And Peter, wise old Peter, says this. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter, again, known in the Gospels for his wise decision-making, takes two verses of Scripture completely out of context in deciding that not only must they find a replacement for Judas— God didn't say this. Not only must they find a replacement for Judas, but his replacement must be someone who was with them from day one. That's like saying, okay, we need someone from uh, outside of this room to come uh, do something for us. Okay, you're in here. Why don't you come with me? It makes no sense. Why are you picking someone from within the group? You have to be exactly within the group to belong to the group. These requirements were completely in line with their own expectations, but not in God's. They had zero idea that God was about to replace Judas with Paul, a man who not only wasn't with them from the beginning, but who also wanted them all gone, out of the picture, in jail, even dead if necessary. The man who God wanted to include in their community was the very outsider they were afraid of. A few days later, it's the day of Pentecost. And today, Christians celebrate Pentecost for what happened and what was recorded in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. But for the Jews, including all of the disciples of Jesus, it was and is a holiday all its own known as Hashavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And this is where it comes from. In Deuteronomy 1, when Moses is speaking to the people, he says, You shall count seven weeks. Began to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle was first put to the standing grain. And then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord God blesses you. So the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, is a harvest festival. But it's more than that. Because tradition holds that 50 days after the Exodus, God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. Then the whole mountain groups trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. On the very first Pentecost, God came down to earth to be present with his people and to give them laws that would guide their relationship with him and with everyone around them. On the celebration of Pentecost that we're covering now in Acts 2, 1,400 years later, God came down once again in the form of the Holy Spirit to be present among the people. And not just to give guiding laws, but to be the guide 
to their relationship with him and the people. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from the heaven a shout, a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And soon after this, the disciples of Jesus left the safety of their upper room in Jerusalem, and they faced their fear. They encountered people from across the Roman world. They were people who were born Jewish or converted to Judaism or people who feared God. They were people who came to the temple from Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. And they dwelled in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus, Pontus, in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, a few days ago, Peter made a decision based on what he thought was right, using the Psalms to justify his decision. Let's pick someone from within the group to be an even tighter part of the group. And then Acts 2 happens. Oh, what a difference a few days make. Because on this day, Peter urges others to make a decision based on promises from Scripture to inform their decisions. So this part of Acts, just a chapter later, serves as an example of what might happen when we act by God's leading rather than trying to figure things out on our own. Peter cites three promises from the Old Testament. So what was the first promise that Peter cites as he speaks? Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first promise that Peter cites, you can be reconciled with God. Here's the second promise that Peter cites from the Old Testament. Salvation by God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. God, was ra- God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the first promise that Peter says, you can be reconciled to God. The second promise that Peter cites, God has come to save you. And the third promise that Peter cites, victory with God. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that both, he both died and was buried in his tomb with, his, with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel and therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you have crucified. In summary, I know it was a long piece of scripture, but in summary, Peter is stating that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of these promises of God have been fulfilled. God's promise of reconciliation as spoken through Joel, God's promise of salvation in Psalm 110, and God's promise of his victory in Psalm 16 have been fulfilled in Jesus. And through Peter, God was asking everyone within earshot one question. Will you accept the fulfillment of these promises? Will you accept Jesus? What did they do? When they heard this and were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What crooked generation? Peter is referring to another sermon given by Moses centuries before. A God of faithfulness and without inquiry, just and upright is he. But you, they have dealt corruptly with him, corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. By saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation, Peter is saying, all of you are part of this generation, this group of people who have focused on the creation but have forgotten the creator. All of you are people who have focused on the gifts, including the law, but have forgotten the giver. It's time to remember not who you are, but whose you are. And the response? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We're speaking about inclusion today. It began with God coming to his people and calling his people to be a blessing to the world, to be holy, to be set apart for his use, to live differently from the rest of the world. 
His people chose not to be inclusive, but to be diffusive, to be common, to be like everyone else, and to live just as the rest of the world live. And it had dire consequences for them. Given a second chance, the people held closely to God's commandments, but they held too tightly and prevented them from being the blessing to the world that they were meant to be. God came again to call his people to be a blessing by being inclusive. And given their history, only a select few were ready for that. And now we come to Acts 1 and 2. In Acts 1, the only one that the disciples of Jesus saw fit to add to the ranks was the only one person that was already with them. But a few days later, their eyes were opened. God added a myriad of people to his movement. God added not just those who were with them, with them from day one, but those who were about to join them on day 1,000. God added not just those who were from Galilee, but people from all across the Roman world. God added not just those who had met Jesus and heard Jesus firsthand, but those who had just heard about Jesus for the first time a minute ago. God added just not 120 people. He added 3,000. And this diversity came together. We see in our reading that as we progress through Luke and Acts, Luke Acts, excuse me, God, as the Holy Spirit, is opening more and more doors, breaking more and more boundaries, calling more and more people to him, and asking his followers to include all of them and to live together with God and with one another. We here in this room are actually proof of this diversity. If you don't believe me, let me show you something. This is a clip from the 1999 movie Bowfinger, starring Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. Steve Martin's character is an independent filmmaker in L.A. trying to make a movie on the cheap, and he's enlisted Eddie Murphy's character, Jif, to be his leading actor. But Jif is not an actor. He runs errands for the director and the crew. A lot is being asked of Jif, not only to run errands, but to learn and to deliver his lines and to do his own stunts.
minutes anymore. What are you talking about? I don't want to do it. I just want to run errands. Heavenly God. Heavenly God. What are you talking about? Not many people can do what you just did. The stunt drivers were really impressed, weren't they? Uh, really? Now, guess what? We got an errand we want you to do. Really? We want you to go to Starbucks. Oh, I do. Get coffee for everybody. A really complicated order. I would love to do I would love to just go get some coffee. And you're the only person who can do it. Yes, I want to get some coffee, man. Okay, but first, let's do this one more time. So, <laughs> I'd like all of you to take part in a little experiment for me. So can I have everyone stand up? And you are about to cross a freeway. Bye. This space up here with the chairs, this is the freeway. These are the cars that you're going to be dodging. So I need everybody from over there. You need to come up here too. Everyone in the other room, come on up for a sec. Come on up. Go a little closer. Don't worry, we're all family. Don't be shy. So... This freeway in the middle of the room, we're going to be crossing from this side to that side. And throughout the room, you can see numbers up here. One, two, three right there. Four, five, six, seven over here on this wall. And each of these numbers stands for specific attributes. What I'd like for you to do is, when I name one of these attributes, I'd like you to go to the corresponding number that represents you. And then tell the people at that group about your personal attribute. I know it doesn't make sense right now, but just trust me, okay? We'll start easy. All right, here we go. So our first attribute is origins. If you are from Central Europe, Central Asia, or South America, please go to number one. If you're from Asia, if you're born in Asia, Africa, or Australia, go to number two. If you are born on the East Coast, go to number three. Number four, if you were born in the American South, over there. Number five, if you were born in the Midwest, over here, this back wall. Number six, in the Pacific Northwest, or the American Southwest over here. Number seven, anywhere else. If you don't know, if you don't belong to any of those other groups from one to six, go over to number seven. You must participate, Rachel. So now, once you're in the group, I want you to tell two or three people what city you were born in. So go ahead, tell the people in that group that you're in. Number six, tell people where you, what city you were born in. Okay, we good? All right. We're gonna be moving again. We're gonna cross the freeway, dodge these cars. Here we go. Family of origin. If your family has just two or three people in it, go to number one. If they have four or five in it, go to number two. If you have six to eight people in your family, go to number three. And if you have more than nine people in your family, holy smokes, go to number four. Dodge the cars, dodge the cars, oh no. Okay, once you're in the group, tell the people in the group how many people are in your family of origin. Yes, includes your parents. Some people have one parent. Okay, next move, are you guys ready? Cross that freeway. 
careers and career paths. Whether you're firmly in that career path or you're thinking about joining it. If you're in medical or legal, number one. If you're in food, hospitality, or transportation, number two. Engineering, construction, or manufacturing, number three. Education, including students, government, and community services, number four. Physical and social sciences and tech, number five. Arts, design, music, and media, number six. And if you don't belong to any of those groups, head over to number seven. I have a ministry. Uh, ministry too? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You have to tell them. Okay, once you're in your group, tell the people what you do or what you're looking to do. If you're an introvert, I know it's tough. Just tell one or two people next to you. Just one or two will be fine. Okay, next one. What do you like to do in your free time? If you like to read, go to number one. This is like... Most like to do in your free time. Most like to do in your free time. Read, number one. Watch TV or movies, number two. Number three, play games or sports. Number four, be out in nature. Camping, hiking, walking, whatever it might be. Number five, sleeping or kicking back and relax. Is that what you like to do in your free time? Awesome. Play music or sing, number six. Number seven, anything else. And once again, when you're in that group, tell the people what you like to do in your free time. What specifically do you like to do in your free time? Okay, next one. Hey, sleepy people, you're having too much fun over there. Next one. <laughs> Energy. How do you best answer this question? I prefer to sp my free spend my free time by myself. Go to number one. I prefer to spend time with others. Number, number seven. And once you're in that group, tell people what you like to do with other people or tell people what you like to do by yourself. You don't fit any... 
So you're some weird hybrid. You're getting hit by cars right now. I don't know what to say. Okay, last one. Last one, folks. This is gonna be device. This is gonna be divisive. So get ready to fight. Okay. Notice this group is quiet. This group's still talking. <laughs> Here's the last one. Get ready to battle. Here we go. The cuisine you love the most. If you like Western European food, French, Italian, Spanish food, like such. Number one. If you like East, Southeast, South Asian food or Polynesian food. Number two. Latin American food, number three. North American food, you like hamburgers, number four. Middle Eastern food, Turkish, Lebanese, Egyptian food, number five. African food, Ghanaian food, Ethiopian, Moroccan, and seven, anything else under the sun. What's your favorite? Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay, anything else is right here, seven. Oh, yeah, I got Ghanaian in there. Okay, once you're in your group, tell the people your favorite dish. Tell the people your favorite dish from your particular desired cuisine. Okay, enough talking. Thank you for taking part of the experiment. Take a seat. Take a seat, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <coughs> so as you can see, ton of diversity in this group. Ton of diversity. And we're not going to even talk about politics, so ton of diversity in this group. So as you can see, differences aren't necessarily the issue in the family of God. The thing about the Holy Spirit is he tends to break boundaries. He tends to have you join him in unfamiliar places with people who are different from you. And he gives you the courage to do so, to cross that freeway. In a sense, we're just like Jif. We're navigating the freeway of life. Unlike Jif, we're not doing it alone. We're also doing it with people that are in some ways just like us, in other ways vastly different. In the church, in the family of God, we know we have differences. And the differences themselves aren't much of an issue because we see that God brings us together regardless. How we handle the differences is an issue. And that leads us to, well, who we think belongs there and who we think doesn't belong there becomes an issue. I belong here. You're different from me. You stay over there. Actually, you just leave the room. Next week, we'll t uh, continue this talk about inclusion, and we'll talk about the history of the church, how it challenged those who followed the ways of Jesus years after Jesus' death and for centuries afterwards, how it led to church splits and denominations, and how God's desire for inclusion still challenges us today. But 
in a sign of unity. I would like you to join me in this prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, blessed is your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.